Hey, and welcome to the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Monte. Where do your opinions come from? Why do we think what we think, and why do we disagree? In each episode, we'll talk with thought leaders from around the world to help us understand the nature of opinion, how ideas form, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. Gabrielle Rifkind is both a group analyst and an individual psychotherapist, and she directs the Oxford Process, which works quietly behind the scenes in areas of conflict to help prepare the parties for peacemaking. One of her important books is called The Fog of Peace, How to Prevent War. Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us. Well, that's my pleasure. I'm very pleased to have this conversation. Uh, The pleasure is all ours. Um, Let me start at the top with these, this double role of yours. You're both a, a psycho um, a- analyst, a psychotherapist, I mean, and a group analyst, and you work in conflict resolution at a macro scale. How do those things go together? Yeah, well, it's a good enough question. Um, I got drawn into this work about 20 years ago. Um, and in fact, at the time, I was training um, 40 group analysts in Israel to work with trauma. And this took three years, and I think I went on over 20 occasions. And I decided I didn't want to work with um, people who'd been traumatized or even help train people to work in this area. I, I believe that the whole political systems were traumatized. And if there was an entry point at a political level, then maybe I could make more of a relevant contribution. Now, if you look at how conflicts resolved. It's usually done so through the lens of geopolitics, and that's about power relationships. Um, And it seemed to me that whilst power is hugely important, it's not enough. Conflict's about people, and it's about what happens to people in conflict. And there's much to say about what happens when people get marginalised, humiliated, feel excluded from a political process, and that we seldom factor this in. So I think we need to both understand the geopolitics, the power relationships, and really enlarge our contribution onto understanding the human mind. Are there, is, is the micro the same as the macro? Do you see a link between the trauma of the individual and the trauma of of a society? Do those things map to each other? I I think they do, but one has to be very careful within that. And you also have to think about the individual, the larger group process, the state, the relationships between states. But you can look at countries who have almost been, who have been traumatized by conflict, whose perhaps instinct is more around, don't humiliate me, I'm going to assert myself in the face of what's happening how the kind of history um, of, of uh, the history and psychology of relationships has affected what is currently possible. And I did a lot of work historically on the Iranian nuclear issue. Um, I've also done a lot of work on the Palestine-Israel conflict. 
And it's certainly true to say one of the reasons why it's so difficult to move forward in either conflict is because both the individual and the country's state of mind. Um, I, I remember, and I, th- I wrote about it in the Fog of Peace, when President Obama um, he reached out to the Iranians, to Ayatollah Khomeini, and he did it with a clenched fist. But he said, you know, it's time to improve relationships and change things and see if we can negotiate a deal. The response back was not in that spirit. But I think what was not understood was the Iranian history and what the conflict had meant between them. They had a much, much longer memory. Ayatollah Khomeini remembered the Iran-Iraq war and, you know, over a million people were killed. And many of the people who became the Revolutionary Guard had actually got caught in the trauma of war. Um, Obama might have read his history, but he certainly did not psychologically understand what was deep in the Iranian mind. So does the work that you do with individuals, understanding... Um, as, as a as a as a practicing mm. therapist, understanding where their trauma comes from, their personal histories, etc., does that um, that kind of approach to to individuals work also at a at this macro political level? I think you've got to be very careful, and I find myself moving in between because I you know I work at the, at the political level and I I engage with politicians, and, and how far they even know that I'm a psychotherapist, I sometimes think. Huh, that's going to be reduce the level at which I can be taken seriously because politicians and don't don't respond to those ideas. They think it's a bit irrelevant or an add-on or a waste of time, and things happen to have far happen to have, need to happen fast. So I'm careful, but then there are other occasions when I say I come from a psychological background, and I certainly know that with some of my Iranian colleagues, well, they'll say it's all about psychology. Um, or particularly in the Middle East, uh, I don't know if you remember, President Sadat said something like 70% of the difficulty of relationship between Israel and Egypt, um, and he made the first peace treaty, was psychological, was people's states of mind. Because if it wasn't, you know, making peace deals is, is quite a rational process, and there's often good reasons. It's in everybody's interest to make peace or not there are some people who still benefit from war, but mostly life will be better if you make peace. But you cannot underestimate the history of all that emotion that sits there and completely gets in the way of having a more strategic, rational conversations about how you negotiate and how you make deals. I'm wondering whether you might describe countries or nations as having psychologies therefore too i think you can talk about about this this uh, the, the, the country's psyche their propensities i mean one has to be careful not to caricature it and and it's complex but you know how we see ourselves as a country is hugely important in terms to how we respond to conflict um we we think we're open-minded but actually we have huge um confirmational biases or already make all kinds of assumptions about the other, the other country, how they're thinking. And we usually or nearly always do it through our own lens. Um, UK might think they do it through the lens of liberal democracy. Um, 
I might say they might do it through the lens of fundamentalist liberal democracy. They assume other people should think like them. They We have make assumptions about the superiority of our values and how we live. And that actually, when we engage with other parts of the world, we assume that um, it, that they, if we could draw them closer to thinking like us, we would make a better world and we'd be more li- likely to resolve conflict. I might say that's the essence of one of the reasons why we don't resolve conflict. That's absolutely fascinating. I want to come back to that. Um, I, I wondered whether, given you've spent so much time working on Israel-Palestine and on, on Iran, how would you go about analysing an, an Israeli cultural psychology or an Iranian cultural psychology? Yeah, I mean, I'd be very careful of analysing. Um, uh, partly as a psychotherapist, I don't really believe analysing the people I work with. I believe you establish a relationship. And the important thing is in that you tr- build a trust between yourself and the other. And what you want to do is you want to enter into their mind. You want to understand their histories why they think as they do, what has influenced and shaped how they think. I might go as far as to say we don't we won't necessarily like how they think, but we'd be do well to inquire and to find out and to understand as to why they think as they do and to start there. So you have a psychological background, obviously, and you bring it to both your therapeutic work and also your conflict resolution. But um, you talk a lot about culture and history and politics. How much of identity would you therefore describe as purely psychological, the inner, the inner workings of our of our particular ind- independent mi- individual minds, rather than that big cultural historical whole? How important is that to our constructions, our identity constructions? Yeah, it's such a good question. And, you know, how do we construct identity? Um, and these are the kind of questions... It's worth inquiring, finding out from people. You know, if you're the member of the Taliban, how did you construct that identity? Uh, did it come with your mother's milk? Um, is it the culture in which you live? Um, at, we, sometimes I talk about the idea of sacred values, which is an anthropological idea. But what are the things that are so deep inside you that you hold on to that you probably never negotiate away? And, and that... And in the Taliban's case, you know, it's things like the, the, their pride and protecting their family and making sure that they're, they're looking after them. But so the, the really important question around identity is how fixed this is and are the moments it can be more fluid and that, that, that it moves. But, you know, it's worthy of us all asking the question, how do we create our identities? Yes, I realise this may be more than one podcast. Um, um, so perhaps, perhaps another way of, of asking this question is to ask you about your process. Yes. So, um, how do you bring your psychological training to um, to deal with issues of conflict, which involves such giant things as land and politics and economics, and and often millions? of people and international relations, et cetera. How do you, how do you bring what you've learned on the couch in a sense to, um, 
to, 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 to international conflict resolution. Yes, and I grapple with that all the time. And, and I think sometimes people, my colleagues think, well, could you just not explain exactly what you do? But, I, and I, you know, is there a bag of tricks? Do I have a toolkit? But I always think it's something a bit more subliminal than that because it's actually about how do you build relationships? Um, how do you get people to trust each to trust you enough that you can maybe get them to sit with someone else that they definitely mistrust and will probably continue to do so. Um, how are you seen as an honest broker? Um, my colleague Gianni Pico, with whom I wrote The Fog of Peace, always said there's no such thing as neutrality, Gabrielle, he would say. He said, "Every you look at every glass, it's either half full and half empty. So, you know, let's not pretend we come with a complete objectivity because we have our histories and we are who we are. But actually, I think what we do bring is, are we to be trusted? Are we an honest broker? Can we bring people together to sit together who would not normally? Um, if they don't trust each other, can they trust us? Can we be some kind of conduit? And of course, that's the same what I do in my therapy room in my consulting space you know you kind might bring couples together who are divorcing who hate each other but am I a trusted third party who can who can make that safe enough to do um well I once remember in a group because I'm a group analyst as well that I had a, a prostitute in the group and then I had a woman whose husband had been going with prostitutes and their first reaction was they were definitely not going to sit in the same space but of course, my job was, how could I make it safe enough for them to sit together so they could listen to each other, however painful it was? Gabrielle, what's there for your sort of theory of change? I understand what you're doing, and I understand the role that you need to be taking, which is one of this, of this honest, trusted broker. But what do you hope to gain by bringing these warring parties together? What's the What's the con? What are, you, what, are you, what are you trying to build there? Well, first of all, I think violence creates more violence, and and cycles of violence that go through the generations. So anything you can do to stop the violence makes some kind of contribution. And you know, I I, I don't want to make out that I, um, you know, this is a very tough, messy game, and there are many actors involved. And you know, sometimes you feel you're having some impact and sometimes you think this is, uh, can, can can I make any difference? So I don't want to be too uh, uh, hubristic and, you know, I think I, I need to be modest almost about what contribution. But your question is about theory of change and how people change or whether they don't change. And in fact, I think you came to me because you were interested in our theory around managing radical difference because I, I think there's a kind of belief um, in peacemaking, Eva, in that you get people together and over time you build relationships sufficiently to find common ground. Well, my experience of Palestine and Israel is the opposite. The more you bring people together or the more you listen to people's different narratives, and often they won't sit together, particularly the Palestinians because they feel so disempowered and so weakened, what what you actually find is the gap is even greater between them. It's not suddenly where do we find the common ground. It's what and and so what I mean by managing radical 
um, differences is if we've got completely different ways of seeing the world and take the next stage of the Afghan negotiations, you know, members of the Taliban are going to have utterly different views than some of the women have had particular freedoms over the last years to have adopted a, a more liberal vision of the world and how they want their lives to be. There is not going to be a common ground. And so, first of all, can people listen and tolerate the differences that exist? Can you create conditions for that? And it's certainly very tough. You might need to listen to one side each side separately to begin with, and then look at can people be brought together? And then in that space, how do they manage these very, very profound differences? Now, what I would say is if you push that further enough, people do have self-interest. And mostly it's better to stop the violence and to create the conditions for how people are going to live together, very possibly with different visions. I mean, this was equally true when I, I was writing about Brexit or even trying to do some work quietly behind the scenes around how do you manage people's radical differences? They're very different ways of seeing. And not because you could necessarily pull people across the barricade, because possibly you couldn't. You know, people seldom change their mind. Um, people, I, I did some radio four programs crossing the red line and it was about if you got I was a conflict mediator if you got people together in the same space would people draw closer together and I think my strongest message was stop trying to change people's minds but how do we live with difference and how do we live with different ways of seeing I'm sorry that's a long (laughs) no no, but a a very strong point which feels deeply countercultural and therefore very interesting Um, it's not about common ground. It's about being able to listen to, um, properly listen to, um, this very different perspective and see whether those two perspectives can coexist. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what, we're, what we're doing with Palia um, very much is premised on the same idea, which is that we, that lots of different ideas about, uh, about the world are wonderful. We will need to surface new ideas um, because we've got new challenges. But it's just this key question, of how do you listen? How do you how do you best um, how do you best hear? How, I mean, are there are there certain prerequisites for being able to listen and therefore being able to disagree? Yes, I mean, at a psychological yes, level. Yes, I think people, most of us, I include myself at times, are very poor listeners. We think we're listening, we're pretending we're listening, but actually, mostly what we're trying to do is persuade the other side to think like us, come over to our ideas, and join us in our camp. And actually, listening that makes a difference is is actually qualitatively quite different from that. It means listening with an open mind in which you can genuinely hear the story of the other. And that's incredibly difficult, particularly if you don't like what they're saying. So sure, people could do with training in listening skills. I mean, politicians in particular um, are particularly good at talking but very weak at listening and very weak at listening in a way because they don't even want to be influenced there isn't room for that there isn't room to think differently so at a human level what do you need to do to hear somebody on the other side of the fence or on the other side of multiple fences what what what's your approach what's your how how do you position yourself yeah well i do think um 
it, it does help by understanding why people think as they do. And particularly in conflict, where people have often reached very extreme positions, positions that are inexplicable to us and often not at all palatable. We find a lot of the things that more, more extreme groups stand for even distasteful. But I, I think I would say, perhaps with my back, my the, the, the psychological understanding I have, is people are not born. You don't get babies born extreme or thinking in extreme ways. They might be pretty early on, be exposed to values around them. You know, if you're a baby being brought up in Gaza, you probably, even again, with your mother's milk, you're going to have a you know, taught about a particular attitude or, or relationship with Israel. But then you still have to think, what are the roots? What are the foundations of this extremity? Why have people come to such extreme positions? And it's usually more likely to do th with things like exclusion, marginalization, humiliation, feeling there's a huge injustice, that there isn't an ac a, 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 a fair access to resources. And, and, and when you dig deeper into people's minds, they, this kind of extreme positioning has seldom come from nowhere. I have so many questions for you. Um, what You've sort of touched on a number of the sort of drivers of conflict, humiliation, the sense of injustice. What do you think... Is there anything that you'd boil down to the to the fundamental drivers of, of of conflict? Are there certain key things that you always see in the in the work that you do? Well, I think humiliation is a huge one. I think the link between humiliation and violence. I mean, I think we know it in ourselves when we feel humili humiliated. It's visceral. We feel it bodily. Um, in the end, it's often about gross injustices, about you know, in part how resources are allocated. But and also in of course there's a fight over these big issues and those who have more power and access to power and resources don't want to give it up. Uh, you know people are not sort of just very reasonable about it and decide they want to share resources more. And and, and you know, within that there are very deep emotions that get trampled on. That's fascinating. Um, so in terms of the position that you take to be able to listen. One, there's a big why piece here, as I, as I hear you, which is asking why. Where do these things come from? Why are these ideas being articulated? Why is this person um, uh, taking this position? But you also talk in your book about empathy and, and, and this beautiful phrase you call, you use moral imagination. Wow. Can you, can you t tell me a little bit more what that means as an approach to your interlocutor? Yeah, no, I like that phrase. I've forgotten it. Um, yes, I, I think often, and you can even see it in the COVID crisis now, people get very stuck and it's very hard to imagine a way through. Um, and if if the layers of conflict get so deep, you get very disillusioned, you get very cynical, you don't believe there's a way out. And, and so... What what I'm calling for is is both is is well I'm actually in the first place asking for our, us to use our moral imagination. Um, you might say it is describe it as trying to get into the moccasins of the other person. What's it like for them? Can you imagine yourself if you were a Rohingya or 
uh, a woman who's been raped in the Congo. No, we don't, because our lives are so... Um, it, it, it's beyond our moral imagination. You know, we, we live in, in often uh, secluded, hermetically sealed bubbles. Um, but our moral imaginations requires us to think, what would this be like for us? And how would we manage it? And what would it be like if this was our life? And I think that in part should determine how we behave. I think I might. Sorry, so, I'm just going to say I think I might have been using the phrase moral imagination also for people who become deeply entrenched in the conflict. If you're a, a, a Gazan, you know it's impossible to imagine a future. So even to imagine, you could one open the space to imagine, not not to create delusion or false hope, but you know we we, we have how do we get beyond this deadly stuckness? Um, the title of this book, The Fog of Peace, is a spin, of course, on Robert McNamara's Fog of War. Um, and you use McNamara all the way through as a sort of a, a leitmotif for somebody who understood that their initial approach to conflict was completely wrong and who, towards the end of his life, spun back on an, uh, on an idea around, around empathy. Can you can you open that up? Unpack that a yes, little bit for us. Yes, no, that's put very nicely. Yeah, I mean, he Robert McNamara was the architect of the Vietnamese War, um, and I suppose latterly, with great humility, he recognised that he got it wrong. He says we did not understand the mind of the enemy. We were fighting different wars. We were fighting for a uh, the Cold War. They were fighting their own for independence and, and, and you know something as simple as that how do we get into the minds of the other to understand what matters to them I actually went to North Korea about three or four years ago and people were a little shocked and appalled and wanted me only to come back with stories about how awful it was or how terrible and there's no doubt there's huge human rights abuses but actually the most interesting thing was to get into their minds why do they think as they do Um, and the, the 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 tricky part is is doing that. How did how did you get into their minds? What did you what did what did you see? Well, I mean, it's true that you know we had minders with us all the time, and it was limited how free their minds could be. Um, uh, Lovely word, minders. Yeah, in that yeah, case, my, minding my mind. <laughs> yeah, so so it was limited. But I suppose the best thing I could I could make sense of is is what. Of course, there's a very nasty authoritarian regime at work, but there's also, what's the history? What's the conditions that this kind of regime can even thrive? And, and how do people, how do they see themselves? And what would allow them to come out of this uh, most rigidly closed down country in the world? Yeah. Um, I wonder, so you, you look professionally at situations of extreme conflict, Gaza, Israel, Palestine, North Korea and its position in the world, Iran, etc. Um, it seems to lots of us that the West today is sort of polarizing itself. It's in a, it's, we're in a moment of certainly identity conflict. Um, 
and, and, and it feels like a sort of a radicalizing of identity conflict in the US, in the UK, etc. We've seen it with Brexit. We saw it with the election of Trump. We've even seen it, as you say, um, in our responses to the coronavirus mm. um, lockdown in the UK, but, but around the world. Um, societies create the circumstances for radicalization, don't they? People are not born extreme, as you say. So what do you think are the circumstances? What, 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 what are the social circumstances which have created the ground for the radicalization that we see yes. today and in the UK and the US as well? Yeah, and I am finding myself moving back closer back home, um, thinking about some of the problems we have in our own country, uh, some of the issues in Europe, because I think we are very much at risk to moving towards extremes, and we we know it, and we've done it historically before. Um, so I, I I think instead of just the kind of labelling of things like the political right, we do well to understand why people think of it as they do. What what have been the cause of this? Um, there's a wonderful book, Darkness Over Germany, and it describes the rise of Nazi Germany in, in the 1930s. And what were the conditions, what were the humiliations that people could take on such perverse values? Um, I mean, maybe there's a point at which you have to stop an understanding and you have to act. But again, what happens when people feel humiliated, when people feel they have little control over their lives, when they don't feel they have access to resources in the ways other people do? And so, you know, leaders like Trump or Orban, they, they only speak to what's going on in the population. You know, Trump keeps a consistent, what, 40 to 46% of the population behind him. Well, we can't just despise groups who think differently to us. We, we do well to understand them better. What are the things that people are thinking in particular ways? And it's not like human behavior. You know, it's not like there are good people and bad people. We all have the potential to be good and bad. But when we take on certain positions, when we become very defensive, when we become feeling more threatened and more fearful, what needs to happen to make us feel safe? What needs to keep us human so we hold on to human values? What stops us going into the, to the morass, into the pit of 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 are each one of us own evilness. So would you describe, therefore, in a sense, the election of Trump or the, or the election of Orban um, as a sort of psych psychological, sort of mass psychological phenomenon? I don't know if I'd say that, but I would say let's understand what's going on in the society that, that, that in which we see the swing to greater authoritarianism. Uh, what's potentially happening? You know, I think we need to look to Europe on that. They will post-COVID. What is that going to mean? Um, what that it's going to be very inequitable in terms of suffering. Um, we've seen this in terms of whether it's the old or young or financial inequalities or who's going to be out of work and who's going to be protected. And unless we seriously address that, we will be setting all the foundations for more extremism and potentially violence. Yes, because, of course, there's another, a, a, a very different view of the 
Orban Trump phenomenon, say this this, this harder right positioning, which is, to your point, humiliation, but also deep, profound, entrenched inequality exacerbated over the last 10 years or so, and a politics which hasn't at all um, dealt with that. So there's also potentially a shift away from the the open, liberal, inclusive, generous uh, position that we were used to um, really in the build up to 2008 and thereafter, um, and now one in which where resources are perceived to be massively reduced, um, we move from one of openness and inclusion to one of pr- protecting our yes, group. but I might even question the idea that, it, that our liberal position was genuinely inclusive. Um, I think it was inclusive for the privileged, um, for those who, who benefited. You saw inequalities getting greater and greater, um, and that the wealth distribution in liberal democracies and the differences have increased hugely. Um, so I wonder how far we really have had an inclusive society. It certainly didn't feel that like that for many, many people. Yes, there's a, there's a strong argument to say that one of the reasons we have radicalised politics today is precisely because the old consensus politics that we used to have just didn't work. Well, yeah, so, or, or, or that we might slightly have kidded ourselves about how really um, everybody felt they had a piece of the pie. That makes lots of sense. Um, I want to ask you one last question, Gabrielle, if that's okay. In your book, you have a lovely quote from Rumi, the um, the, the Sufi mystic from, um, from Anatolia. Um, and he, he, the quote you have here is, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Mm. which is a beautiful quote. Um, But it makes me ask, if we are beyond wrongdoing and rightdoing, do we not slip into a very, very dangerous risk of relativizing everything? Very few people are going to disagree with you that violence isn't the answer, but I've met some. I have met people who think that actually um, the welfare state, for example, and our obsession with um, with moving away from violence slows evolution. I mean, there there are there are people who do disagree with you. So, how do we know what's right? How can we fight for things which we think are right if we're so busy listening to the reasons that people think differently from us? Yeah, I mean, it's such a big question, isn't it? And I'm not sure I can give you a a, a sufficiently meaningful argument because, I, yes, of course, there are moments where um, you you know, if you think of the rise of Nazi Germany, it might, there had to be a moment where we couldn't just tolerate the difference. Uh, that, but I think we could have looked at how do you get there or how do you get to those conditions. But the beautiful Rumi quote you, you speak to, I think that might be talking about something beyond politics, beyond how do we look inside ourselves to behave better? How do we take some moral responsibility and moral imagination for what we do? So there's both what governments do and how do we find an emotional maturity inside ourselves? And I think that's everybody's task. Um, And certainly post-COVID and with all the environmental issues, there, there is the geopolitical 
um, and, but, and, and the state, but there's, all, there's also us as individuals and what we do. But, you know, what a big question all of that is. <laughs> um, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for walking me through all this area, which is, which is fascinating and exactly where we, we hope to, um, to work with Palia as well. Um, Gabrielle, I, I love this conversation with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. And, um, and again, all our thanks. Well, thank you for asking such good questions. That's why it helped me. <laughs> Great pleasure to talk. That was the Palia podcast from Palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion.